Uh, Welcome to all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God. Uh, Welcome to members and guests who may be here on the occasion of Liz and Andrew's uh, baby dedication. Welcome to those of you who are joining us for that as well. I invite you to turn to the Word of God, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 12, verses 36 through 50. Chapter 12, verses 36 through 50. Uh, We come here to the conclusion of Jesus' public ministry. John 12, 36 through uh, 50. Let's hear God's word together. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man, more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, We approach you with reverence in the name of our Lord Jesus. We confess that you are majestic, great, glorious, high and lifted up, in control of all things, doing as you please in heaven and on earth. And we approach you this morning conscious of the fact that you are holy, good and pure through and through, and that we are not, Lord. We are very far from you in terms of purity. Father, we know that we have no claims upon you and could not come into your sacred presence on the basis of our own merits. But we thank you that you have given us your son, Jesus, who shed his blood, that in his name we might draw near to you. And it is in his name that we approach your throne, Father. We praise you for your faithfulness. And we confess that so often we are half-hearted in our commitment to you in Christ, We are squeamish uh, when it comes to sharing you with others. We lack boldness and vigor in our witness to Christ. Father, we pray in the name of your Son that you would forgive us. We ask that you would be pleased through your word this morning and your spirit to embolden our witness for Jesus. Grant us to care far, far more about his glory and his greatness than our own glory. And let us speak up for the glory of his name and the good of others. Bless this time this morning. Let, the, let your word bear fruit in our lives, we ask. Amen. 
Uh, I hope that you've had the opportunity to either watch Lord of the Rings or read the, the books. You really should read the books, but if you can only manage one, at least uh, see the movies. But uh, if, you've, if you've seen Lord of the Rings or you've read the book, you, you've come across the character of Denethor. Denethor is a defeatist. Uh, Denethor is this very cunning, clever individual who sits high up in his tower at night when everybody else is sleeping and he stares quietly into the distance and he considers the political scene. He considers what's going on around him and he's constantly evaluating, coming to conclusions, assessing. And he finally comes to the conclusion that goodness has no chance. Light has no chance. The darkness, the shadow will swallow up all before it. He despairs. There's no sense in even fighting anymore against the darkness uh, because it will certainly win. In his mind, the darkness, evil, wickedness is far more potent and impressive than whatever little goodness there may be in the world. So he gives way to defeat and discouragement. And it should be said, there are some denethors running around, perhaps in the church, perhaps in your family, uh, individuals who have looked at the contemporary scene and they've seen all the darkness and they've concluded there's no hope. The, the wickedness is too great. Uh, the light will be snuffed out. Well, if, that, if you're either, if you've given way to that perspective and are filled with anxiety and discouragement, perhaps you're tempted to give way to that uh, bleak analysis of things. I want to tell you that there is encouragement in God's word today. And the encouragement in summary is this. God's in control. He's in control over the darkness and over the light and all things. And his good purposes are invincible. This morning we'll note three things as we look at this passage. The first is the unbelief of the Jews is a part of God's plan. The unbelief of the Jews in Jesus' day is a part of God's plan. Second, uh, we will see an example of flawed belief. Flawed faith, if you like. And third, we will consider the seriousness of unbelief. So, in this passage, this is a transition passage. This is where we move from Jesus' public ministry to a focus just on his disciples on the eve of his death. The rest of the Gospel of John is going to be Jesus and his disciples. He's going to be instructing them, and he leaves the public scene. And then, of course, uh, he'll be crucified and resurrected. So this is a transition point in his ministry. And what's remarkable is that his public ministry comes to a close on a very tragic and anticlimactic note. We are told that he had done so many signs before them, they, that is, the Jews and their leaders still did not believe in him. The problem, we should be clear, is not with the quality of God's revelation. Jesus, through his teaching and through his miracles, has revealed God in a powerful way, clearly and decisively. His signs or his miracles have revealed that God himself is at work. Jesus has turned water into wine as a picture of his, his reign, the reign of joy. Uh, he has uh, healed those who are paralyzed, giving them the power to walk again. He's multiplied bread and fish to feed hungry multitudes. He's raised the dead. Again and again, Jesus has displayed God to the Jews. And yet they don't believe. The problem is not with the revelation that Jesus brings. The problem is with them. They lack spiritual sight. They are blind and can't see the glorious revelation right in front of them. And this is instructive. Because many times people say, well, the reason I don't believe in Jesus 
is because God's revelation in Scripture isn't sufficiently clear, or there is not evidence, or we need more facts. The assumption is always that there's something wrong with God's revelation. But rarely do people consider the possibility that there might be something wrong with you. There might be something wrong with your spiritual perception. What if God's revelation in Christ is clear and glorious, but that you are spiritually blind and unresponsive? That's, in fact, the teaching of John's gospel, that God has revealed himself powerfully in Christ, but men are spiritually blind. We're like that blind man who looks at the sun and says, I don't get what everybody talks about, the sun shining in all of its brilliance. The sun's not as bright as everybody claims. Well, of course, the, prob the problem in that situation is not with the sun's light, it's with the sight of the blind man. That's the position of every person vis-a-vis -vis the truth of God revealed in Christ. We can't see, we're spiritually blind. Maybe instead of doubting Jesus, you need to doubt your doubts. Doubt your capacity to see the truth about Jesus. Maybe instead of sitting in a place of arrogant evaluation, you're going to decide for yourself who Jesus is and whether he's the Son of God. Maybe you need to come to the sober conclusion that you don't have spiritual sight. And unless God gives you light, you're not going to see the truth. This fact should humble you. It should cause you to ask God to open your eyes that you might see the truth about Jesus Christ. So the remarkable thing, Jesus has done all of these signs, and yet most of the Jews in his day reject him. They do not believe. Uh, and this was, uh, this was a problem for early Christianity. This was an objection that Jews had. Like, how can you say that Jesus is the Messiah when most of the Jews uh, reject him, don't submit themselves to him? How can you make this claim? Have God's purposes been defeated? Has his plan been thwarted by the unbelief of the Jews? Well, no, says John. Look at verse 38. Uh, they disbelieve. They still do not believe in him. Notice, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So their unbelief brings about the fulfillment of God's plan his purpose, and his prophecy in Isaiah. Uh, in Isaiah 53.1, that's the verse that's quoted here, uh, the prophet Isaiah speaks of his experience of being rejected by the people of God, by Israel. Isaiah has the word of God to the nations, or specifically to Israel, and Israel responds by rejecting him. And that experience of the prophet of God anticipates the rejection of even Jesus the Messiah. Uh, Jesus himself is rejected, his message is rejected, and his powerful miracles are rejected. And all of this happens in conformity to the plan and purpose of God. God is not surprised by Israel's unbelief. Uh, his purposes aren't thwarted. They are, in fact, brought about through this rejection of the Messiah. And then uh, John goes on and tells us how this fulfillment is brought about. Verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Startling statement. Uh, John, quoting uh, Isaiah 6, is saying that God has hardened these Jews, has blinded them, has hardened their hearts, and that's why they reject Jesus. Now, obviously, this raises all kinds of questions, and we need to bear three things in mind as we look at that affirmation. Uh, first of all, However we understand this language of blinding, we need to recognize that it doesn't 
let, let the Jews off the hook. They are still culpable and morally responsible for their rejection of Jesus. That's clear in verse 37. Uh, they still did not believe in him. They, of themselves, freely rejected the Messiah. They chose to not believe. And whatever the relationship is between their unbelief and this hardening, they are fundamentally responsible. We are responsible before God for the choices we make and for the rejection or faith uh, in Jesus Christ. So they're still morally accountable. Second thing we should notice, though, is that this hardening that John speaks of is a judicial hardening. It's punishment to those who are already not believing. We shouldn't think that these Jews are eager to believe in Jesus and that God doesn't want them to and so hardens them so that they wouldn't. That's not what's happening. These Jews have freely chosen to reject Jesus, to not believe in him, and God hardens them in the sense that he gives them over to that unbelief. He says, if you want to reject my son, go ahead, thy will be done. Uh, one New Testament commentator, D.A. Carson, summarizes it like this. God's judicial hardening is presented as a holy condemnation of guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen. And this hardening work of God, God is, as it were, giving people over to the unbelief that they've already chosen. This is similar to what Paul the Apostle says in uh, the book of Romans. Romans 1, 24 and 25, Paul says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So notice, they reject God, and God in judgment on them further gives them up to their sin. He withdraws his restraining influence and gives them over to sin. Something like that is happening here. So these are not innocent people seeking to believe. These are hardened sinners who are further given up to their sin. Third thing then to notice is that this is simply a stage in the unfolding of God's saving purpose for mankind. The Apostle Paul speaks about this at greater length in Romans 9 through 11. And in chapter 11, he speaks about the fact that a partial hardening has come on Israel. But this partial hardening, Paul says mysteriously, is a means to an end. This partial hardening is not an end in itself, but intended by God to bring saving blessings to Gentiles and ultimately even Israel. Because of their opposition to the Messiah, the Messiah will die. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ will be shed. And through that opposition to the work of God, salvation will come to mankind. Even in the most hideous and spectacular act of opposition to the plan of God, the death of Jesus Christ, sinners are still bringing to pass the good and saving purposes of God. And so John concludes in verse 41 by saying, Isaiah said these things, uh, spoke of the rejection of this Messiah because he saw his glory and spoke of him. The reference to his glory is probably the future glory of Jesus, but may well include a very famous vision in Isaiah 6 of God's grandeur and glory revealed to the prophet Isaiah. And it may be the case that uh, when Isaiah saw the majesty of God in Isaiah chapter 6, he saw the pre-incarnate son, Jesus Christ. He saw an anticipation of the much greater glory that would come with the coming of Jesus into the world. But the point is that these things all took place according to Scripture, according to the plan and purpose of God. What we needed to recognize then as we see this large-scale rejection of Jesus is that God is not surprised by the wickedness and unbelief of man. Indeed, his plan 
takes into account the wickedness and unbelief of, of man and uses it to advance his purposes. He is firmly in control of all things, including the wickedness and unbelief of sinners. It's part of his plan and accomplishes his purposes. Uh, we should recognize that God is not surprised when evil happens. We should recognize that his good purpose is to bless his people and renew creation. His purposes aren't thwarted by the wickedness of man. It's not even that God has to sort of work around the bad things that people do. No, uh, God doesn't look at the bad things that happen and then figure out a way to make good come out of it. No, the bad things themselves are part of his plan. Now, we need to emphasize very strongly, as scripture does, that God is not the author of evil. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He is good all the way down. There is no moral impurity in him. Those who sin against God are responsible, as we've seen, for the choices they make, not God. And yet we need to, at the same time, even as we affirm God's absolute moral purity, need to affirm his control even over wickedness. It, too, is a part of his plan and intended to accomplish his purposes. We see this in several passages in Scripture. Consider, for instance, Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Calamity and well-being come from the hand of the Lord. It's part of his plan. Lamentations 3, 37 and 38. Who has spoken it and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Notice that. Good and bad come from the mouth of God. Not in such a way that he's the author of evil, but in such a way that he's in control over all of it. Job 1.21, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, part of Job's, Job's misery comes from evil men who harm him and some pretty miserable uh, circumstances as well, impersonal circumstances. But above all of that, Job sees the plan of God working itself out, recognizes that his calamity has come in, in, in some sense finally from the hand of God. It's part of its, his plan. So recognizing that even evil is a servant of God's, not his equal, that he's in control over it and using it to advance his purposes, it should be a source of tremendous comfort. It means in the first instance that Denethor is wrong. Uh, it's not finally the blackness, the evil, the wickedness of the world that is strong, the most potent. It's goodness, it's light, it's truth, it's God that is finally strong and in control. And therefore, his purposes will surely come to pass. The wickedness of men can't thwart the purpose of God to bless his people and to remake, uh, renew all things and make all things new. Uh, God's plan to make everything new is invincible and will certainly come to pass. There's tremendous comfort in that. I mean, you look around at the world, and, you, and often, especially if you're you know, following all of the news, don't do that if you can help it. But if you're following all of the news and you're hearing the steady stream of terrible things that are happening from everywhere to China, even to um, closer to home, it's easy to get discouraged and feel like the darkness is the really potent thing, that it's going to have the last word. The encouragement of John's gospel is that God is in control over all of it. However strong dar the darkness may seem, it can't stop God's purposes. This darkness is a passing thing. It will pass. And God will bless us in the context of a renewed creation, he's going to make everything new and right and good, and his purposes are invincible and certain.
That's strong comfort to us. And that's, that's true, by the way, not just of things generally, but also for our lives individually. It's because God is in control, even over the bad things, that we can have confidence that whatever terrible things come into our lives, well, they will sting, but even as they sting and we acknowledge the pain that we can experience at times, we also recognize that they can't thwart God's purposes for us, and indeed the darkness will advance his purposes for us. So this week, uh, men's study, we were talking about the life of Jacob, one of the patriarchs of Israel. And uh, there, we were talking about a moment in Jacob's life where, where everything is sort of up in the air. He's got to run away from home because his brother Esau wants to kill him because he's stolen his blessing. He's got basically just a staff with him. He's on his own. The future's uncertain. He's, he's just like a man on the run, not sure what's going to happen next. And so at that very unstable, uncertain moment in Jacob's life, God reveals himself to Jacob. He says, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bring you back home safely. Great. Then he shows up to his uncle Laban's house and uh, falls in love with a beautiful Rachel. That's the woman of his dreams. That's the woman he wants. He worked seven years to get her. Then his uncle Laban tricks him. Uh, he, he thinks he's spending the evening with Rachel, but behold, he wakes up. It's not Rachel at all. It's Leah, her less lovely sister. Uh, you know, he's appalled. What have you done? He says, oh, don't worry about it. This is just the custom. The, the, the oldest should get married first. Uh, here's what you'll do. You work for another seven years, and then we'll call it even. Now, it's interesting to put these things together. God has committed himself to a servant, Jacob. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to be with you. But allows, but allows Jacob to be deceived, to be, to be taken advantage of by Laban. And this deception, by the way, is going to prove deeply disastrous to Jacob. There are going to be long decades of incessant domestic strife as these two wives bicker and their children fight and argue. It's wearying just to read about it. It's one of the ways uh, Scripture discredits polygamy. Look at the endless headaches and heartaches and domestic conflicts that it creates. So there are going to be years of wearying conflicts in Jacob's family because of Laban's deception. There'll be seven years of work where he's not going to get paid. All these terrible things happen. His life is a mess because of this deception. And yet, God is working through the mess and the misery. God is using the, the deception, the misery, the heartache of it all to make Jacob a man after his own heart. Jacob is a self-reliant schemer. But it's through these kinds of experiences that he learns to be strong, not in himself, but in God. The hardships begin to fashion Jacob into a man of God. And not only that, this miserable domestic situation also brings about the 12 patriarchs of Israel. So God takes this mess of a situation and begins to shape Jacob into the man he wants him to be. And he advances his good purposes for the world. Through the mess, through the darkness, through the uh, sin and suffering, God is advancing his purposes. Now, I don't know in your life what the analogy is to Laban's deception. I hope no one has actually deceived you. Uh, but all of us have our share of misery and heartache and difficulty in this life. And if we belong to God, we need to live with the confidence that God, this is not wasted suffering or random suffering. God is doing something good through it. He's making us reflect the image of his son and even advancing his kingdom through some of the heartaches that we experience in this life. And that's a source of no small comfort. So God is in control even over this massive rejection of Jesus as part of his plan, first thing we see. Second thing we see is that even though in general people reject Jesus, there are still some who believe. Then as soon as we say that, we have to qualify it. 
Verse 42, many even of the authorities believed in him. Good, okay, so here's some leaders among the Jews. They believe in Jesus, great. But we've, we've sort of been prepared in John's gospel for, for an anti-climax at this point. We've seen several times in the gospel of John how one moment people are said to believe in Jesus, they respond positively, and immediately after we discover actually that, that positive response isn't actual saving faith, and this is the same thing here. They believed in him, we're told, but then immediately that's qualified. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So there are these people, these leaders, quietly admiring Jesus, drawn to him, but they're scared to say anything publicly. Jesus is the Messiah. The reason they're scared to say something publicly it's because the Pharisees, the religious leaders, have said anybody who confesses that Jesus is the Messiah is going to get kicked out of the synagogue, equivalent of getting kicked out of church. You're going to lose your religious community. Pious Jews would come together in the synagogue. They would pray. They would read scripture. They would be instructed in Torah. Uh, that would, those are your people. You know, that was your crowd. It would, it would have been deeply disorienting to be excluded from that. And because of the fear of being excluded from the synagogue, these Pharisees kept quiet. They didn't say anything about Jesus in public. And notice the indictment in verse 43. Why did they do this? For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They wanted the approval and acceptance of other people more than the approval and acceptance of God. And so they kept their mouth closed about Jesus. What we, what we learn from them is that the desire to be in, accepted, admired, respected, by a group of people can be a powerful obstacle to following Jesus Christ. We all know the craving to be in, in the inner circle, loved, welcome, to have a people. And we know how, how difficult it can be to be uh, marginalized and alienated. But that desire for man's praise and approval can be a stumbling block to, to having the approval of God. I don't know if you've ever... Uh, had the experience of being a new employee at some company or some school. And, you know, this is before you know any of your coworkers. So you show up to the lunch area and you look around and all of your coworkers have their little groups. Nobody invites you. So you take your lunchbox and go over in a corner, obscure corner, and eat your salad in silence. <laughs> Just wallowing in the misery of not having a, a group, right? We know how miserable it is to be on the outside of things. Then a few weeks go by and you start to have your own group, coworkers who like you. When you walk into that same lunch area, you know, their faces light up. Hey, sit with us, they say enthusiastically. And you're in, and man, it feels good to be in. It feels good to have a group, right? Uh, we, we know what it's like to want the approval of parents, and siblings, and friends, spouses, children. And there's nothing in a sense wrong with that. It's right and good that to a degree we should want to be loved and accepted by the people around us. The crucial thing is that we not need it. We not need the approval and validation of man. That we not lust after it. That we not crave it. That even when we don't get the approval that we desire, we're not completely crushed. Because finally, our identity is not based on their acceptance. Our identity is based on God. So we need to recognize that this need for the approval of others, which in itself is okay, can be a powerful stumbling block to following Jesus Christ. And as his followers, when we are faced with that difficult choice between choosing between the acceptance of people we love and Jesus, we are called to always choose Jesus. 
even if that means at times parting ways with long-standing cherished relationships. Jesus always trumps everything else in our lives, including relationships in our lives. Is that true of you? The New Testament doesn't have a category for anonymous Christians. If you're a Christian, you're called to publicly confess your allegiance to Jesus. We do this in baptism, where we stand before the church and publicly declare allegiance to Jesus. We do this by associating with the church, but we do so also as we regularly talk about the fact that we belong to Jesus, that he's our savior. Uh, There is no, again, there is no category for people who keep silent about their allegiance to Jesus. Those who belong to Christ should talk about the fact that they belong to him. Everybody around them should know that person is a Christian. Is that true of you? Do your coworkers, neighbors, people around you, do they know you're a Christian? Or are you a closet Christian, scared of what might happen to you if you identify as a Christian? I think this is especially important for us to, to recognize because we, you know, we live in a world with cancel culture. If you're on the wrong side of the prevailing opinion, you get marginalized. Okay. Jesus still calls you to publicly confess him. There's also pressure in our world to keep your religious opinions private. Right? You don't share them in public. Well, that, that's not what the Bible calls us to. If you're a Christian, confess Christ publicly and openly. Fear God more than man. And verse 43 shows us the way forward. The reason that they couldn't confess Jesus publicly, the reason they were scared of doing that is because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They cared more about the approval of men than the approval of God. It's another way of saying that people were big and God was small in their sight. When you keep quiet because you don't want to offend people or you're scared about what they're going to say, you have a big view of people and a small view of God. So just recognize that whenever there's a, you fear talking about Jesus or being pegged as a bigot or something like that because you're a Christian, what's actually happening is that you have a small view of God and you care more about human approval than you should. The way forward is twofold. First, repent of your sin. Confess before God and say, God, I'm sorry that the honor that I should be giving to you, I'm giving to mere men. Forgive me. Help me to change. And then second, we need to cultivate an ever-increasing apprehension of God's majesty and glory and greatness. And the only way this happens is as we walk with the Lord daily, as we have a disciplined life of prayer, as we meditate on his truth, as we pray into our hearts the truth that scripture has revealed about him. As we do that, our hearts begin to expand and our vision of his glory increases. And so we begin to fear man less and less. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, I think has a helpful description of this process by which we get an increasingly big view of God. And he characterizes this process as rejoicing in God. And here's what he says. To rejoice is to treasure a thing, to assess its value to you, to reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. Rejoicing is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened and rested and until it relaxes its grip on anything else it thinks it needs. So the way forward when it comes to the fear of man is not simply to stop fearing man. You have to replace it with something else. You have to replace it with the fear of God. And the way we learn to fear God more and more 
It's through this intentional pursuit of him day by day so that we stand increasingly in awe of his glory and are freed from the tyranny of human expectations and the need for human acceptance. So third thing then to notice here, final thing, is the seriousness of unbelief, the significance of unbelief. What you get in verses 44 through 50 is basically like a summary of Jesus' message up to this point. A lot of the themes that John has been developing uh, are restated here. Uh, But these themes also emphasize the significance, the weight of rejecting Jesus Christ. Three things to notice. First of all, if you reject Jesus, you're not just rejecting Jesus. You're not just rejecting a man. You are rejecting God himself. Verse Uh, 45, whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. We've seen that idea again and again in John. That if you see the son, you see the father. You can't have one without the other. other. Uh, There is such a profound unity between the son and father that to behold the son is also to see the father. And that means if you reject Jesus, you're not rejecting simply a human being. You are rejecting God himself who has come into the world to bring life to the world. To disbelieve in Jesus, to say that I won't accept the message of Jesus Christ, is to shut the door to God himself. Second thing, to to disbelieve in Jesus is to reject salvation and the salvation that Christ has come into the world to bring. If anyone hears my words and and does not keep them, I do not judge him. Now when Jesus says he doesn't judge them, he means he didn't come into the world the first time to judge mankind. He's coming again the second time and there will be a judgment. But he didn't come into the world the first time to judge the world. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Why did Jesus come? To rescue sinners from their plight. Uh, According to scripture, we are all rebels, far from God. We've done as we've wanted instead of what God has called us to be and to do. And we can't through our moral striving make ourselves right with God. But Jesus has come to do what we could not, to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death we should have died, to bear the judgment of God in our place. And through him, we can be reconciled to God. But to reject Jesus is not simply to reject God. It's also to reject the salvation that he has come to bring, the reconciliation that he holds out between us and God. And thirdly, to reject Jesus is not simply to reject his message, but ultimately to reject the message of the Father. Verse 49 I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So when we hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we are hearing not just the words of a man, but the very words of God himself. And to reject his message is finally to reject God's ultimate and final word to mankind. So we need to understand the weight of unbelief. Sometimes we, we perhaps a very superficial view of unbelief. Ah, we can agree to disagree. You think Jesus is God, I don't. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that in rejecting Jesus and his claims, you're rejecting God, you're rejecting salvation, and you're rejecting God's final and best word to mankind. And there is no hope for you apart from Jesus. There is only eternal separation from his presence for all those who reject God's final revelation. So at the end of his public ministry... Jesus says one last time to all those who who will hear, consider what unbelief means and believe today and live. And that message goes out to all of us today.
Consider what it means to reject Jesus. And today, he invites you to trust in him as your savior and bow the knee to him as your king. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have brought us from death to life, and through your shed blood, you've reconciled us to God. Lord Jesus, we pray that the truth about who you are and what you've done would penetrate deeply into our hearts and bear much fruit for your glory and the good of others. Amen.